The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Siege of Vicksburg was, in the eyes of many historians, the military turning point of the Civil War. Much has been written about the Vicksburg campaign and about its victor, General Ulysses S. Grant, but surprisingly there has never been an account dedicated specifically to Grant's role in the siege itself. Until now. Michael Ballard has written one and come up with some interesting conclusions about Grant at Vicksburg. The title of his book is just that, Grant at Vicksburg, The General and the Siege, and we'll talk to him him today, Michael Ballard, on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected listen listen the world is talking the world talk radio variety channel welcome back to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich coming to you on a beautiful friday afternoon in april 2013 from the third floor of the Brewster Building, overlooking 10th Street in Greenville, North Carolina, home of East Carolina University. Speaking, as always, just for myself, however, not for the university or the history department or the Brewster Building or any other inanimate object. And likewise, my guest will speak for himself today, as always. It is a good time uh the, the the best and worst time of the academic year as we approach uh, commencement. The seniors are restless. The students had their annual day of fun on the mall, the central grassy area of the campus yesterday with bands and activities. And they are enjoying the pleasant weather. It's unseasonably decent right now. It's not uh, as it often does, skipping directly from unpleasantly chill to way too hot. Uh, we're having those few days of just right in between, and it's a nice time to be in North Carolina. Uh, so it's a great time. It's also uh, the worst time of the academic year because annual reports are due. The faculty resent the annual reports, as I do. And then uh, the department chairs write their faculty evaluations, and the 
the faculty resent that as I uh, resented when my chair wrote one for me. And I, as a, a currently serving as department chair, uh, feel absurdly uncomfortable with the idea of evaluating my peers, some of whom are senior to me, some of whom are much better at what they do, teaching and research, than I am. Uh, it's an awkward and uncomfortable position in which to be, redeemed only slightly by the fact that the evaluations make no difference whatsoever because the legislature is determined not to give us uh, money for raises, uh, as they have done the last four years. There was a little bit this year, but it was just a flat raise across to make up for inflation losses. So, uh, to my surprise, however, I've discovered in years when there's no money at stake, the faculty take the evaluations even more seriously than the years when they get something out of it uh, because uh, because that's all they get is the pat on the back that is some numerical rating uh, when there's no merit raise attached to it. Uh, so it's that time of year, faculty evaluations, department reports, uh, grades, of course, and uh, uh, various other reports, conflict of interest reports, this kind of report, that kind of report. The ideal administrative university will one day be reached uh, like like the law firm in, in Bleak House that uh, finally celebrates the day when the entire estate has been consumed in court costs and lawyers' fees and the case that has run for decades is now over because there's no money left for the heirs. So it will be when uh, one day I and other faculty will get to spend all of our time writing reports about what we do and none of it actually teaching or researching. We're not quite at that moment yet, but but that's the direction and... Uh, uh, we'll we'll see when we get there, I suppose. In the meantime, it's time for that one-hour vacation from the uh, uh, the administrative lifestyle to talk about Civil War history, both this week and in weeks to come. There are some uh, very interesting guests in the hopper. Uh, I won't give specific dates attached to these because I'm not sure what all of them are going to be yet. Uh, but we'll, we'll hear from, uh, Chris Mikowski, uh, who has written about, uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg and also Chancellorsville and three or four other, uh, uh, relatively small books, but, uh, collectively an impressive output. Uh, the legendary Gabor Borat, uh, director of this, former director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg, uh, may be joining us this spring, if not certainly uh, either with or, or without his son Jake, who has put together uh, some interesting uh, multimedia productions dealing with the Battle of Gettysburg. Jonathan Wells from Temple University uh, is on the calendar. Uh, so is Megan Kate Nelson uh, from Harvard University. He's written a very interesting book, Ruin Nation, about uh, the physical destruction wrought by the Civil War. So all kinds of interesting people coming up. Yesterday on campus, we had a, a guest speaker who uh, was in the is an English professor and gave a talk on the Civil War confession of Mark Twain, and spoke about, of course, Twain's famous brief account, the uh, private history of a campaign that failed. And I went to that talk and enjoyed it and thought it was well presented but I had with me a copy of uh, Joe Fulton's book The Reconstruction of Mark Twain which we discussed a, a year ago or two on this show with him and I, I'm not sure I learned anything new yesterday that wasn't already in the, the previous book uh, 
the current speaker is not a civil war expert and didn't pretend to be, but I felt unusually educated by having read uh, Fulton's book and having the opportunity to talk to him here on the show. That's not a book I would ordinarily read in the course of my own research or even uh, pleasure reading on the Civil War, but it was sent here by a publisher. It looked interesting. I got in touch with the author, and we ended up having a, a, a good show out of it. And that is one of the things that I like best about this. I, I hear from listeners about the uh, new facets of the war that the show opens their eyes to, and I just want to say that I'm one of I, I'm in the same boat. I enjoy learning new things uh, about aspects that I would otherwise never have any idea about. Uh, uh, things like soldier identity discs come to mind, uh, a show several years ago that seemed like just an absurd topic, yet was utterly fascinating. So, uh, I like the show. I uh, hope you do. If you want to learn more about who's been on or who's coming on, check out www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney produces the most important website of all. And you can, while you're there, press the PayPal donation button and send uh, a contribution to the show. Uh, CivilWarTR at AOL.com is the PayPal address. And if you feel moved to send $25 this way or more, you'll get a copy, if you wish, of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, or Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. I'm happy to send those out and uh, as a gesture of thanks for your support. And your funds are not tax-deductible. They will not be used for the betterment of mankind just for me to buy Civil War books or, if I'm taking a vacation, World War II books or perhaps uh, War of 1812 books. Who knows? Uh, There's no no promise what happens with your money once it's out of your hands, but that's, that's the pitch. Well, enough about uh, the show. As a show, let's get to today's topic, uh, the siege of Vicksburg and the victorious general U.S. Grant. Uh, not previously the topic of a book, but uh, he is now uh, by uh, today's author, Michael B. Ballard. Uh, Professor Ballard, are you there? I am here. Uh, it's good, good to hear from you. Uh, you and I saw each other last uh was it a year ago when when the university uh, when mississippi state university was inaugurating a series of lectures uh yeah uh, 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 that, that, that that i guess it was like a february it seems to me does that sound right well you're asking uh a guy with a poor memory <laughs> <laughs> considering well, i'm a historian by the way i must comment uh your, uh, some of your opening remarks there remind me of how delighted I am that I'm retired now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, every time a colleague says he's retiring, it sounds better and better. Uh, you you retired from Mississippi State, is that correct? Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking now at the liner of the book, and you retired for 30 years there as a coordinator of the Congressional and Political Research Center. Uh, but I, I met you through uh, uh, 
John Marzalek in the Grant Papers. Are, are you involved with the Grant Papers, or were you? I was. Uh, by the way, Marzalek was my major professor throughout graduate school, so he and I have known each other. I think our 40th anniversary is coming up this fall. <laughs> wow. So those, those who know John can can applaud that or feel sorry for me, whichever they prefer. <laughs> but uh, when uh, John became executive director of the U.S. Grant Association after the death of uh, the other John, John White John Simon, Simon um, he moved into the area where I worked, and I, you know, I told him, I said, I try and try, but I cannot get rid of you. But anyway... Um, the purpose of uh, which what is now designated as the U.S. Grant Presidential Library, because we'll have, uh, or I should say they will have uh, a separate floor on the library, I hope within a couple of years. Um, but anyway, John asked me to help with the editorial process. They were finishing up a volume that John Simon had been working on when he passed away, and that left one more to be published. Um, this was, as you know, in, in uh, reading some volumes of documentary histories, there's always one volume at the end where you try to pick up all the things you missed when the previous volumes were being published, and that was the last volume, and John asked me to be the troubleshooter which meant if Grant mentioned a, a last name without a first name, I was to track that person down, or vice versa, or any other little thing that came along that we didn't have a a good explanation of, and that he knows how much I like to do detective work, so that worked out really nicely for me. And uh, we finished that book. It was published, uh, I guess, around last May sometime in... Uh, They've moved on now. They're, they're going to do um, editorial uh, publication of Grant's memoirs, um, including footnotes, which uh, the many times published memoirs gone through many editions have not had good documentation. So I got to work with that a little while, and then I retired in December of 2012, and so I have not been working with that since. Uh, although John knows where I live, and he knows my phone number, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're still not I, I've already been them. told that I will be expected to look over some of the stuff they're doing, but... Uh, it was a wonderful thing for me, you know, being a Civil War historian, I never in my wildest dreams thought the U.S. Grant Papers would come to Mississippi State. And I'm sure a lot of other people felt that way, but uh, they arrived in December of 2008, just before our Christmas break, and two moving band loads. And um, so we had, a, we had a great time uh, going through the all the papers trying to get them arranged so we could work with them better and, and even more to more importantly so that researchers could work with them better and because there are I believe we counted sixty six thousand folders 
of materials that w- are not included in the published volumes, not to mention uh, quite a number of subject folders which have some wonderful material in them. So people who are doing biographies and uh, I guess the latest one will be Ron White, who wrote a really nice biography of Lincoln that came out, I believe, in '09. He spent a lot of time with us this past year. He's doing a biography of Grant. So for me, it was uh, some nice icing on the cake at the end of my career. I could have stayed on longer, but I, I just thought it was time to step aside and well, not have the, the pressures of annual reports and <laughs> <laughs> annual reviews yes, and uh, those sorts of things. I don't miss, I have not missed not going to meetings. That that was the worst thing for me, having meetings that accomplished little and killed a lot of time that you could better spend doing something else. Uh, that's that's definitely the case. The uh, well, the papers really are a critical resource for researchers. And uh, my colleague uh, Chuck Calhoun down the hall here is working mm-hmm. on his uh, volume on the presidency of Grant. Right. So he's uh, he's been out there. Uh, yep. I know more than once. And he has. Uh, uh, he and I talk regularly about Grant. He's he's more interested in the post-war years. Uh, but we compare notes, and uh, he's always uh, he saw what I was reading to today to talk to you, and he said, "Oh, you know, let me see that when you're done." So uh, I'm passing your book down the hall uh, as soon as uh, we're done talking about it today. But uh, the the idea of having that resource there while you're working on on Grant at Vicksburg is really uh, uh, a, a marvelous thing. I know when I worked at the Lincoln Museum in in Fort Wayne, to have an archive, uh, a library just about Abraham Lincoln, right at my fingertips, was really a great thing. And we didn't yeah. have nearly the manuscript resources that you have, but it certainly uh, certainly helps. Did that steer you to this topic, having that accessibility, or did you no, or already have the idea? I think everybody assumes that, and. Um but it it did not uh originally my idea was to follow up my uh the book I had done on the Vicksburg campaign I was going to do um, a single volume on the siege and there's not a good volume on the siege out there anywhere in fact there's not one um, just covering the siege and then I began thinking about well I had put two long chapters on the siege in my campaign book. I said, I will be walking back over some familiar ground. Uh, so I got to thinking about that. And and one day it just struck me, you know, I, I really don't know what Grant was doing during the siege. I mean, not in detail and... None of the biographers uh, got into that much at all. They just kind of skimmed over the siege. And so I actually began working on on the book that has come out uh, before the grant papers arrived. And I had some delays, and well, you know how that is when you're working full-time, and I have 
twelve year con I mean twelve month contract. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of research time, so things can move rather slowly at times. But uh, I was well into the book before the grant papers came, but when they did come, they certainly saved me a lot of money, travel money, uh, photocopying money, things uh, you know, things that I would have been forced to travel quite a bit to look at. Uh, John Simon had already photocopied and got them into the collection, and, uh, and it's not just grant papers. I mean, he has... James Wilson's papers, who was one of Grant's staff members later, a Calvary uh, man, and uh, even had some of uh, Sylvanus Cadwallader's uh, letters between he and, and Wilson and Charles Dana, who was um, a representative from the War Department during the Siege of Vicksburg. He and Grant became good friends, and Dana later became Assistant Secretary of War. He was a newspaper man by by trade, but I had all this wonderful material that I especially needed to get into the drinking story about Grant that has been around ever since uh, Cadwallader's memoirs were published, uh, I think, in 1955, although they were written in the late 1890s. This is a good place for us to take a short break, then, because I want to ask you about that story. Okay. And we'll come back and, and delve right into that uh, in just a moment. We're talking today with Michael B. Ballard, author of Grant at Vicksburg, The General and the Siege. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market step up to the microphone view the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv america's next great star is waiting to be discovered Step Up to the Microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael B. Ballard. He's the author of Granted Vicksburg, The General and the Siege, along with other books about uh, Vicksburg and other Civil War topics. But we're talking today about his uh, most recent uh, work, Grant at Vicksburg. And as was pointed out in the first segment, no one has really written uh, about the siege itself as a separate topic, and in particular, this book looks at what General Grant was doing throughout. Biographers touch on that. He conducts a brilliant campaign, locks up the city, uh, then spends uh, some months there until uh, the surrender, some weeks actually, until the surrender. But what was he doing during that time? And that's what we find out here. Uh, Mike, just to set the stage, uh, 
Grant, uh, how did Grant decide there had to be a siege? How, how did we get to the point where there is a siege at Vicksburg? Well, he had, uh, as some of your listeners may know, but I can review it quite quickly. Uh, the last phase of his campaign to take Vicksburg was his Overland campaign. Once he crossed the Mississippi River south of Vicksburg, um, the Confederate troops were scattered and uh, not very well commanded. And he won victories at beginning May 1 at um, Fort Gibson, May 12 at Raymond, Mississippi, May 14 at Jackson, Mississippi. And the reason he decided to go to Jackson was because Joseph E. Johnston had been sent there by Jefferson Davis to try to salvage Vicksburg, so to speak, and he couldn't have picked a worse general to do that because Johnston had, well, first of all, he and Davis hated each other, and Johnston had no interest in saving Vicksburg. He thought it should be just given to the to the Union so the armies, Confederate armies, could go mobile and go wherever they wanted to rather than being tied to a, a town. Uh, Grant then won the key battle of the campaign on May 16th at uh, Champion Hill, and the next day he won another battle, which did not amount to much as far as being hotly contested, at the Big Black River Bridge. And then he moved on into Vicksburg. Now, Vicksburg, from the beginning of the war, had uh, had been a key target of the federal war effort because it was the only place on the Mississippi that could disrupt Union river traffic. Um, so Grant's job was to take Vicksburg. I mean, it was that's what it boiled down to. And um, we have the famous quote by. Lincoln uh, from David Dixon Porter's book, uh, Vicksburg is the key. Got to have Vicksburg. Now Porter's account is the only one we have of that, so we don't know that Lincoln actually spoke those words. Uh, as Ed Bars once said, uh, Sherman was the biggest liar the Civil War produced, and Porter was his equal. So, <laughs> I don't. But uh, as I told Ed one time, that, that saying has been around too long for us to do anything about it, even if we found out it wasn't true. But certainly, in in a real sense, Vicksburg was the key to clearing the Mississippi River Valley for Union traffic, uh, river traffic. And so Grant marched on in, and his his real plan was to just overwhelm the Confederate Army and take Vicksburg right away. He certainly wasn't thinking in terms of the siege. But uh, John Pemberton, who commanded the uh, Confederate forces, when he went out into the field to meet Grant at uh, uh, kind of haphazardly at Champion Hill, he didn't really mean to fight Grant there. They just kind of bumped into each other. Um, he had left two full divisions in Vicksburg, 
to protect the city. So the force that Grant was facing when he went into Vicksburg was consisted of considerably more than just a beaten army that had suffered losses at Champion Hill and at the Big Black River Bridge. Grant attacked May 19th, only two days after his victory at Big Black. He was beaten back, uh, really. William T. Sherman's Corps was the only one that saw much action. So he pulled back, kind of regrouped, and by then the other two corps were up, uh, one commanded by James McPherson and the other by John McClernand, and decided to attack again on May 23rd, and he was soundly beaten, even more so. Um, at that point, that's when he decided on a siege. And as he told uh, David Porter, he says, I'm, I'm not going to hammer my army to death against these very considerable fortifications that the Confederates have constructed. So we will pin them in and try to starve them into submission. And he really did not expect the siege to take very long. Uh, he really began siege preparations on, on May 23rd. Um, and it dragged on until July 4th when Pemberton finally decided he had to surrender because it was obvious that Joseph E. Johnston, who had a 30,000-man force uh, out there north of Jackson at a, around a little town called Canton, it was obvious that Johnston did not intend to do anything to help Pemberton. And so the, the surrender came, and then uh, Grant sent Sherman back east. Uh, Johnston had settled in at Jackson by this time, and Sherman fought uh, Johnston there at Jackson, kind of a mini-siege of sorts, but eventually Johnston evacuated Jackson as he had already done once. And that really was the footnote to the Vicksburg campaign that ended it. Um, so Grant did not plan ahead for a siege. Um, he did it because it was his best option. Now, while he was laying siege to Vicksburg, Vicksburg is on the east bank of the Mississippi, and Grant has his army in a semicircle, mm-hmm. pinning it against the river. He, his constant fear was that Joe Johnston's army, which is off somewhere to the east, is going to come and try to relieve Pemberton and Vicksburg, try to break through Grant's army. So that leads him to send uh, expeditions in various directions, particularly to the northeast, mm-hmm. uh, looking for uh, Johnston or to see if, if, if there's a threatened attack there. And that's where we get the story that we ended our first segment talking about uh, the Grant drinking story. Uh, what is? Tell us the story, and and then talk about uh, what you've learned about it. Well, I thought it was probably the only book I'll ever write where I devote a whole chapter to something that didn't happen. Um, this story was written by a newspaper man who was among several traveling with the Union Army. 
who had the wonderful name of Sylvanus Cadwallader. Um, he, first we need to look at a motive. Cadwallader is one that wrote the drinking story, which has been accepted by so many historians for reasons. Well, I, Mike, let me interrupt. Tell our listeners what the drinking story is. Okay. Uh, Cadwallader claimed that uh, Grant went on a trip upriver, which was true, to inspect things for himself, that he was drunk when he left. He got drunker on the trip. Uh, Cadwallader claimed he was there and saw it all, and he kind of took control of Grant to keep him from making mistakes. And so they finally came back downriver, and Grant got away from him again and was... uh, at Chickasaw Bayou Landing, where a suitler supply boat had come in, and Grant was busy drinking with a lot of other people and still getting uh, more and more drunk. And uh, then he jumped on his horse and rode through several camps of Union soldiers, knocking over their campfires and scattering their equipment, and uh, by the way, these were soldiers that would have been in Sherman's Corps. And then Cadwallader finally catches up with him and gets him back to camp safely. Now, that's that's a very brief overview. Mm-hmm. If you read the story as, as written, and it is still in print, uh, the name of the book is Three Years with Grant, and it's a, a memoir by Cadwallader. Um, it sounds strange from just reading it. In fact, it sounds absurd because Cadwallader has all of these military guys stepping aside so he can take care of Grant. I don't think that would have happened. Hmm. But the real truth of the story was that Grant did indeed take a trip up the Yazoo He did get ill. Now, Grant suffered from migraine headaches. He may have been drinking. We don't know for sure. Uh, Charles Dana went with him. Um, Grant got sick and went into a cabin on the the small boat they were on. Uh, They were going to this little landing place up the Yazoo River called Satarsha, where some enemy cavalry had supposedly been spotted and well, as they went upstream, they met uh, some Union gunboats coming back downstream, transporting soldiers, and they saw that it was Grant's boat, so they stopped and told Dinah, the general shouldn't go up there because we've evacuated the place. There's not really any reason to stay up there. And certainly he doesn't need to go up there since there are none of us there to protect him. So uh, Dinah... Uh, found that uh, Grant was still sick, so Dinah ordered the boat to turn around and go back to where they had started from, uh, which they did, and the next morning, uh, Grant woke up uh, fresh as a daisy and came out and asked Dinah, said, well, are we at Satarsha yet? And Dinah explained what had happened. That's the that's the actual story, and part of it is documented in the official records. Cadwallader changed the story to say that he was on the boat, and that 
Grant was transferred from a, a gunboat to his own boat, which makes no sense at all. He went on up to Satarsha, tried to disembark. Um, Cadwalder told uh, the Colonel Embury Osband, uh, who was commanding Grant's escort, told him that Grant should not uh, get off the boat, that he was in no condition to get off the boat. And so Osband, according to Cadwalder, meekly, uh, practically turned over command to Cadwalder. <laughs> and so he brought Grant back downriver to safety and ultimately back to his camp. Now, the, the, the real problem there is that, and by the way, when this when this book was published, Bruce Catton rejected it out of hand. And for your listeners who don't know, Bruce Catton was one of the... Uh, best known his Civil War historians of the 50s, 60s, say his books are still in print, wonderful writer. Um, but Shelby Foote came along and embraced it delight with much delight. Uh, Shelby Foote, of course, if anybody has, out there has ever heard him speak on television, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, the great Southern accent, uh, he was very much a Southerner at heart. His hero was Nathan Bedford Forrest. So when he saw this story about Grant, he couldn't wait to get it in print. And as I think it's in volume two of his uh, Civil War trilogy. Uh, he also mentioned it on the famous TV series that came about uh, in later years and uh, on PBS. And... Uh, other historians came along and embraced it, and their theory was, and it was only a theory because they couldn't document it, that Cadwallader and Dana were on the same boat. Well, the correspondence after the war clearly shows they were not. Dana says he never saw Cadwallader on that trip, and Cadwallader said, well, he never saw Dana. So you got an obvious problem there. And James Wilson, who was involved with the correspondence between the two, um, said, have you guys not looked at the official records, which by then were being published? And neither had, obviously, uh, but Dana's uh, messages were in the official official records, which gave them credence. And uh, Cadwalder, after reading uh, Dana's, a copy of Dana's letter that, Wilson forwarded it to him, telling straight out, I never heard of such a thing as Dana has as uh, Cadwallader has written about. I know he was not on the boat. Uh, it could only have happened if there was a second trip up the river. So Cadwallader pinned in down at the bottom of, of the letter, well, I never saw Dana either, so obviously there was a second trip. And Wilson wrote Cadwallader and said, well, you have a better memory than I do because I don't remember anything about what you're talking about. <laughs> now, the motive seems to have been, and you always try to find a motive when you find something that's so off the wall as this story, uh, James Rawlings was Grant's chief of staff, and he and Cadwallader were very close friends. In fact, Cadwallader named his only uh, child or only son, Rawlings, Cadwallader, and they were upset 
when Grant's memoirs came out and did not give enough space, they thought, to Rawlings and what a wonderful man Rawlings was. Uh, Grant does mention Rawlings very, you know, with, with much tribute in the memoirs. Uh, but as you know, uh, Grant died before the memoirs were actually published. So Grant could not defend himself against the story that Cadwallader wrote, and I'm convinced he wrote it to get back at Grant uh, for not uh, giving Rawlings enough space uh, in the in the memoirs. So the and, and Grant, by the way, we know from the official records, only made one trip up the Yazoo, so there couldn't have been another trip. And one thing I do point out in, in the chapter I wrote on this whole affair was that I have read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Union soldiers' letters and diaries, uh, both at Vicksburg, the Vicksburg National Park archives and many other archives scattered around the Midwest, especially focusing for this book on Sherman's Corps because, as I said, this is the Corps that Cadwallader, uh, Cadwallader says Grant was riding wildly and drunkenly through their campsites. None of them mention any such incident, not one, not anything even close. So my conclusion is if soldiers had known about this, it would have been in their letters, their diaries, Practically every every Union soldier at Vicksburg would have known about it because they gossiped all the time. So like, like the that, dog that, that doesn't bark in the night, in the coffin. They don't say anything. So we're going to take another short break and come back and and talk more about this uh, and and wrap up this uh, fascinating story of uh, the drinking trip that didn't happen. Uh, talking today with our guest, Michael Ballard, author of Granted Vicksburg, The General and the Siege. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Mike Ballard, author of Grant at Vicksburg, The General and the Siege. We were talking in the last segment about the Yazoo River 
trip on which uh, Grant, according to one account, went on a drunken bender, um, an account by Sylvanus Cadwallader written some years after the war. And, uh, Mike, you, you make a very convincing argument in your book and, and uh, here on the show about uh, the unlikely uh, nature of that account and how, how it's not supported by anything. When you mentioned that you, you've read hundreds, if not thousands, of soldier letters and none of them mention this, it puts me in mind of a, a cartoon some of our listeners uh, may have seen, which Grant and, Sherm, or Grant and Lee are talking at Appomattox Courthouse. And Lee says, oh, one more thing. As a favor, could you tell all your men not to mention the thousands of black Confederate soldiers that I have fighting for me? Make sure it doesn't show up in any diary, memoir, or letter. And Grant says, uh, consider it done. Uh, and this is the same kind of thing. If, if, if this is. had happened, you're absolutely right. Somebody would have mentioned it. Uh, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, the soldiers could have ignored something like that. And, but this also speaks to the power of history that uh, that it mattered this much to uh, Rollins and Cadwallader to to try to to do something like this. Yeah, um, I guess what bothered me most, Jerry, I, and I, I did not make the decision lightly, um, was the number of historians who have embraced this, who should have known better, who should have checked it out. Who should have done a little research? Uh, Shelby Foote, we know about. I mean, he he never documented anything in his three volumes, and but we know where he got this story. Uh, Samuel Carter came along and, and wrote a book, uh, I believe, called The Final Fortress. Mm-hmm. He accepted the story, even though he had been warned by a historian at the Vicksburg Park that there was no substance to it, no proof. And then uh, William McFeely, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Grant, accepted the whole story. Um, Brooks Simpson, who has written one of a projected two-volume biography of Grant, is the only one who has challenged it and done so very well. Uh, Winston Groom, whose book on Vicksburg came out, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, also accepts it. And none of them, those who did, ever really looked at it. Uh, I know when my wife read the story straight out of Cadwallader's memoirs, and uh, she's from Illinois, so she was kind of upset about this attack on Grant anyway. (laughs) (laughs) She said, this is totally absurd. I said, yeah, you'd think somebody would have noticed that Uh, by now, wouldn't you... uh, but only Brooke Simpson, and, and there was a story uh, in North-South Journal, or, or one of those, uh, there are a lot of good Civil War magazines out there, and, and some guy whose name escaped me at the moment, uh, wrote a story, and he also uh, debunked as best he could. He didn't have all the evidence that I had found. But that well, that really troubles me, that, and I really think that, a lot of it has to do with Grant's historical reputation as a drunk. You know, this goes back to his pre-war days. Uh, after the Mexican War, he spent time on the West Coast, and he missed his family terribly. They were in St. Louis, and and yes, he did drink. I I wouldn't want anybody to come away with the impression that I'm trying to say he, he didn't drink. He did drink. Uh, but... Those closest to him said it never interfered with his military duties. Um, 
enough of them have said that that, that I believe it. As uh, I was, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that reputation filtered down through the years, even though Grant left the army, and um, as soon as the Civil War started, and Grant got into it, and eventually, rather quickly, actually became a, a brigadier general. Every time something went wrong, you know, somebody would say, "Well, Grant must be drinking again." You know, it was like it was like all of the old West Point crowd still attributed anything that went wrong. If Grant fell off his horse, well, obviously he was drunk. So I think the historians have so embraced that that they said, "Well, this." I think McFeely, in fact, made the comment: "This sounds like Grant." <laughs> so why it sounds like what people say about him. As I again, I was walking down the hall just before uh, uh, the show, and I, I saw Chuck Calhoun, and, and I said, just off the top of your head, Yazoo drinking, Yazoo River drinking story. And Chuck's not writing about Grant uh, at war, but Grant is right. president. So, but he gave essentially your answer. He said, "Well, you know, we know that from Cadwallader, and he had an axe to grind, and." Uh, yeah. It was way after the war. There's no other evidence. So, not that Chuck is writing about that topic, but I think he'll follow Brooke Simpson and, and uh, agree that that there's there's not a lot of evidence for it. So, uh, hope, hopefully, maybe we'll turn a corner with your book here, and people will start paying attention to. Uh, well, I, I doubt I'll ever sell evidence. as many books as Shelby Foote, but you know, it's a start. <laughs> none of us will. <laughs> <laughs> it's a start, That's and true. Uh, and also, uh, I'm. No, we're pressed for time here, but the other chapter that I found especially interesting was the next chapter, in fact, chapter four on the racial issues that Grant had to deal with, uh, including a story I'd never heard before uh, about uh, how some black uh, men, women, and children at uh, Milliken's Bend, which is on the Louisiana side of the river, but uh, how they were mistreated uh, to the point of rape and beatings and all sorts of things. And and the transcript of the court of inquiry that was held about that uh, was never published. And uh, a friend of mine who works at the Vicksburg uh, Park found it at the University of California Santa Barbara Library of all places. I had managed to get that get. Out there, I don't know, I guess uh, Isaac Shepard, who was the the colonel commanding and who got in trouble for letting some black soldiers beat one of the white guys that were, were attacking all these people. I assume he saved a copy of it, and his family, or he or his family, decided to make sure that it, uh, that it got into the... Uh, into the library out there. Am so again, the power you? of history uh, that they took the time to save that record uh, shows up now in your work. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating story, and it was not the only uh, racial issues. Um, it was among the racial issues that Grant faced. It was, it was not the only one. How did Grant respond to them? He. Uh, I think the point I try to make in the chapter is that uh, Grant's principal goal was capturing Vicksburg. These other things bothered him, uh, the way some of the freed slaves were forced to work 
building earthworks and um, being moved, their whole families being moved around from one side of the battlefield to the other, and and of course all the uh, trouble that uh, Milliken's been. Um, the fact that he tried to cover that up and did a pretty good job of it. I mean, people in Washington found out about it, and but it never really reached the mass audience out there. Uh, one woman apparently heard some gossip about it, and she wrote her son, who was at Vicksburg, and she said, what is this about these black people whipping our boys? And, and her son had not heard about it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he told her, he said, if anyone of them tried to do that, we would shoot him where he stood. So... But we shouldn't come away with the idea that Grant was uh, as racist as many of his men were. Uh, Grant understood that taking Vicksburg was his first order of business. These other things, uh, he could try to remedy uh, after the surrender, and he did. He worked with the Adjutant General of the U.S. Army, uh, Lorenzo Thomas, to raise many regiments of black troops and he worked hard at that before he eventually was sent to uh, Chattanooga which was his next stop after Vicksburg and so Grant uh, was not a vicious racist he, he understood the problems but he also understood he could he could not let all of that get in the way of taking Vicksburg well that is a fascinating story and that's a, a chapter well worth reading that, uh, as you point out, has not really been told in this kind of detail before. Uh, th- th- there are other interesting episodes here. Uh, the relationship of uh, Grant and General McClernand is another one that uh, if we had another hour, we'd want yeah. to go into and talk about that. Uh, but with just a, uh, a couple of minutes left, uh, sum up, what did Grant learn from all this? Well, I think uh, he learned... Uh, patience to a degree, how to be an administrator to a degree, um, because all of the things he had to deal with were not military. It, he had to write letters trying to make sure his men got the mail on time. <laughs> mm. uh, some things that just uh, sound absurd when you're thinking about, well, this guy's job is to take Vicksburg. Well, he had to deal with a lot more than that. And... Uh, I think, uh, too, maybe he learned, uh, I make the point that the only thing that uh, Joe Johnston accomplished during the Vicksburg campaign was to keep Grant awake at night. And I think uh, Grant may have learned that he shouldn't worry so much about something until he knew for a fact that it was, that it was going to, to be a problem. And I can see him uh, in his later years in the war. In my next book, I'm taking him to Virginia. I'm going with him to Virginia uh-huh. for his campaign against Lee and use this same sort of approach. What was Grant doing during all the Overland campaign? And and I'm already seeing just in the background reading I've done that he faces problems in Virginia that he did not face at Vicksburg. But yet he had been through the mill, so to speak. He had, he had not only been a general of the Army at Vicksburg. He had been very much uh, a secretary, and he did have a lot of help, but he had to learn to be an administrator uh, while all of the siege was going on. 
So I think it helped him grow a lot in, in that sense. And I would go so far as to say that the Vicksburg campaign began helping him prepare for the presidency, which he certainly didn't wasn't even thinking about <laughs> becoming yeah. president at that time. But I think the, the different kinds of things he had to deal with, the different personalities he had to deal with, uh, I think helped prepare him for his later years in the war. Well, it, it's a, a fascinating story how he goes through the siege, uh, the methods used to win, uh, the distractions, and uh, the the history that's been written, as you described, particularly the, the drinking episode. Uh, altogether, a very interesting book, Grant at Vicksburg, The General and the Siege, uh, by Michael B. Ballard, uh, something our listeners will want to get. Mike, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's uh, good to talk to you again. Uh, you too. I appreciate it very much, and uh, I hope people who do uh, get their hands on it will enjoy the read. Uh, I'm certain they will. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com